for Ephesians 2 from verse 1. We read and remember that this is God's Word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are, Christ, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us this evening. Well, please do open your Bibles with me to Ephesians as we continue our evening series in Ephesians. As Nigel said, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I think this is one of my uh, favorite passages in Scripture, so I I guess the danger is whenever you get the opportunity to preach on uh, your favorite passage that uh, you'll probably come away disappointed with yourself, but at least God's Word will endure forever, uh, despite my words here uh, this evening. Now, I wonder as we approach this passage, uh, where where is your confidence levels at in terms of your Christian faith? I wonder how you would describe yourself in terms of your confidence in the Lord. When I was uh, younger, I played for Logall Youth football team, and because I was the big kid, I got picked to do nets, and I enjoyed being keeper. It was great because I was big and the nets were small, so it gave me an advantage. Uh, and one day we were playing at Tannockmore Gardens as in nets, and to say that I had an awful day uh, would be an understatement, a little bit like Arsenal Football Club tonight, as far as I know they were doing pretty poorly. It was a bad day for me, and uh, I think we were 3-0 down within the first 15 minutes, uh, and all three of the goals were my fault, and uh, I remember a shot coming in towards me, and with great confidence I shouted, leave it, leave it, spread my arms. And the ball hit the post, rolled back out, and a guy knocked it in, and I got substituted by halftime. So it was a poor performance all around. My confidence was absolutely shot, uh, and the next week I didn't want to play. One performance had taken my confidence away. In my head, I couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't able, and I was about to hang up the boots age 11. It was all over uh, for me. And as we come to this uh, passage in Ephesians, the church that we encounter in Ephesians, their confidence is shot. They think to themselves, we can't do it anymore. We're not able to do it. We're about to pack it in because their confidence in the Lord had been eroded by the secular 
and the pagan society in which they live. And so tonight, for us as Christians, I wonder where our confidence levels are in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder where our confidence levels are in the truth of the gospel. I wonder, have we lost our way a little bit? Maybe in our workplace, or in our university, or in our school. Whenever people mention Christians, at best they laugh, or at worst they are vicious in how they speak about Christians. They call us bigots, and homophobic, and hypocrites. The anger comes out in their words whenever they talk about those people who go to church on a Sunday. And you sit there while you, you eat your pasta bake or you eat your sandwich and you think, I'm not going to put my head above the trench. Or, or maybe your faith is being eroded as you watch our, our various television programs and, and you see that our Christian faith seems to be out of step with all that's going on in the world. Or maybe as you follow your desired influencers on social media, again, you can see that the things that they prioritize do not add up with where we are in our Christian faith. Or perhaps you've been going through an extremely difficult time in your life, and you're suffering right now, and that has eroded the very foundation of your faith. And the result can be that we have no confidence no confidence in Jesus anymore. We have started to doubt. Our belief in Him is weak. Our trust is hanging by a thread. Well, tonight I want us to see that we can have utter confidence, utter confidence in the wave as wave after wave of secularism hits us. We can have confidence against the current of our culture, and that we can have confidence through every storm in life that we face. And here is how, as we step our way th through this passage, we're going to see three things that will give us confidence tonight. And the first is this, and it will start with a negative tone, but we will get to uh, some more hopeful uh, points for us. But our first point is that we are dead by nature. Dead by nature, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and under this title, I want us to see three subheadings that we'll, we'll, we'll come to the diagnosis, the disease, and the destination. So, we are dead by nature. First of all, our diagnosis. Look at it with me. Verse 1, what is our diagnosis? Well, we are dead. We are spiritually flatlined. We're the walking dead. We cannot avoid that. This is who we are from the moment of con conception. We are alive in a sense, but we're also dead. If we were to think about it like this, we're all deceased, we're all numb. We're all empty. We're all meaningless. We're all void. We're all fallen without Christ. It's, it's right on the nose for us. We cannot avoid it. And you were dead. I don't know if you like zombie films. I don't really like zombie films, but I thought it would be the best way to try and illustrate this is to think of a zombie. A zombie in many senses, and they're not real. Sorry to put that out there if anybody thinks that they are. Uh, a zombie, in a sense, is this, this creature that's alive. It's moving, but it's also dead. Alive, but dead. And that's our story. In a sense, we all are dead. Humanity is gaunt, staggering around, alive but not living. And so, whenever we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and we read this opening verse, it's, it's against everything that's going on in our culture, isn't it? 
Because the age in which we live, the best age to have been a human and to be alive, as we live in an era that says we got to live our best life, or living our best lives, well, whenever we read this, it makes no sense then to us. You were dead. We are all dead. It's hard news for us to take. There's no hope. There's no life. We are the walking dead. That's our diagnosis. And secondly, we're going to see our disease here in verse 1. If we're dead, what's the root of that? What's the, what's the reason for it? Well, the disease that we have, verse 1, you were dead in what? In your trespasses and sins. We are dead. The error the that we exhale is the error of uh, disobedience. We're sinners. And what we do is a, is a consequence of who we are. That's really important for us. It's, a, it's flowing out of us. Our, our actions come out from us. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. That's really important for us to get the right way around. We sin because we are sinners. Our practice flows from our nature. And so, what does Paul tell us here? Well, we walk with the world, don't we? Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Do you see that? We're all in this broad path that's been illustrated for us. We're following the course of the world, and we follow our leader in the world. And who's our leader? Well, it's Satan himself, following the prince of the power of the air. See, this isn't just uh, some sort of neutral fur ground or fairy tale that we're walking through in life. This is a, a cosmic battle between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. And so, as we are born into this world, we are born dead, and we follow the prince of the power of this world, that is Satan. And furthermore, we are all slaves. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's the dead leading the dead, the blind following the blind. And we give way to our fleshly desires, don't we? What's the, what's the cry of our age? More gratification? Absolutely. More sexual immorality? Absolutely. Give me all that I can take. More impurity? Yes, yes, yes. It's verse 3, isn't it? Your fleshly desires, the desires of the body, the desire of the mind, if you want it, you can have it. If you want to eat yourself into a grave, well, we'll have fast food restaurants open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you want to follow whatever sexual desire it is that you have in your heart or in your mind, you can access it 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the internet, or we'll go further than that and we'll try to introduce legislation that will legalize things so that you can have your fill. And what is going on in these first three verses is this. Satan puts out a trough for the world to eat at, and he, he puts out all of his finest food, and he laces it with poison, and he says, come and eat. And we answer our selfly and fleshly desires. No self-control, no restraint, no higher wisdom, no rule for life. And as we eat at this trough, the the taste is initially sweet, isn't it? 
It feels good to say yes to what's inside of us, to the desires that we have. But as we have said, this food is laced with poison, and it takes us on a walk straight to our graves. Look at the destination. Verse 3, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our eternal end by birth is hell. We're under the wrath of a holy God. And this is our story. And tonight, if you're not a Christian, you're maybe listening to these words and you're kind of curling up a little bit. You're, you're pulling back from the words that I'm saying tonight. You, you find this a little bit hard to take, and you're trying to find ifs, and you're trying to find buts in ways to get out of it. You're trying to negotiate or to swerve this truth, but we can't. This is who we all are. It's not for some. This is for all. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. There are no exceptions, no one born different. And so, this is a sobering truth for us tonight. Dead, diseased, and destined for wrath. You want to understand the brokenness of our world. You want to understand the mess that, that we have around us in, our, in a national sense, in an international sense, in a local sense, in, a, in your home sense, in your own life, in your own heart sense. Then all you need to do is read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and you will see what the problems are. We're dead by birth. And as we come to the end of verse 3, what do we expect to read next? Well, I think for all of us, we should expect to read verse 4, and it should come something like this, and so God in His justice wields His sword, and He strikes dead every human being. They're all under judgment, and that's it. He draws a line but it's not how it goes. This brings us to our second point, that we are alive by grace. We're, we're dead to begin with. Now we're alive by grace, and this is uh, taking us on a journey. Paul's stepping us through, helping us to see our confidence, and so this is from verses 4 through 9. It's true, isn't it, that, that only when you've been in the storm can you appreciate the calm. Only when you've been on choppy waters can you appreciate the stillness. Only when you've been in the deepest and the darkest valley can you appreciate the highest mountaintop. Well, it is impossible for us to worship our God with hearts full of love unless we recognize tonight the depths from which He has rescued us. That's why we've taken the time that we have taken this evening to look at these first three verses, because this is our story. This is where we were, dead, diseased, destined for hell. And then verse 4 comes, and verse 4 should put the, the greatest smile onto all of our faces here this evening, but God, but God comes. I'm sure you have watched uh, 
the X factor or, or Britain's Got Talent. And what happens usually as we reach the final stages of those competitions, you get a cont contestant and they're usually from uh, some small backwater place and the screen's a little bit gray and they've got some sort of uh, dead-end job and they've, everything in their life just doesn't seem to be working or going to plan. And then somebody, maybe a friend, fills in a form for the X Factor or for Britain's Got Talent uh, and suddenly the screen starts to change color and it all starts to become a little bit more positive and the music becomes more upbeat. And they tell us this great story of transformation, don't they? And they want everybody to phone in and everybody to vote for this person. In a sense, they come from death to life, isn't that how they present it? From nothing to something. And the person gets the glory when you see from how low they began to where they finish, to the high point in which they're lifted up to. Glory is attributed to them. And so with great transformation, it brings great glory. And that's why, that's the logic of what we see here unfolded for us from Paul. Look at how far down you were, and then look at where the Lord has brought you, so that you may attribute to Him all of the glory. To God be the glory, great things He has done. And isn't that the story of Scripture? As we, as we go back into Genesis, and you think about Adam, and you think about Eve, they were, they were at the lowest point they possibly could be, and the Lord appears, and He covers them. He rescues them to God be the glory. And then he comes to Noah, and Noah, he saves Noah's family, and he speaks to Noah, and he gives him a promise. And again, what's the cry? To God be the glory. And then with Abraham, he rescues him out of a pagan world, out of a pagan society. He calls him to himself. He saves him, and he gives the covenant to him. To God be the glory. You see, taking someone from the, the very depths and putting his promises on their life. Then with the Israelites through the Exodus, to God be the glory. That's what the psalmist keeps saying over and over and over again. Great things He has done, Psalm 126. And then to Jesus and to the New Testament church, to the people dwelling in darkness and under the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. And He works salvation to God be the glory. And the point is this, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God so that He gets all of the glory for doing what? For making dead people live. In a sense, we are all like Lazarus, aren't we, in the tomb? Stone cold, dead, spiritually speaking. No hope, unable to save ourselves. There's no way to bring ourselves back to life. And then the Lord calls and makes him live. Now, let's scroll back up in Ephesians, and let's see the, the, the threads that Paul's starting to pull together in, in the chapter 2. Look at, look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Salvation belongs to our God. How do we know that? Chapter 1 and verse 4, He chose us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world nothing to do with ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 5, in love He predestined us for adoption. 
Chapter 1, verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. See the little breadcrumbs Paul has been leaving for us up until this point, until he comes to the summary of the Christian life where he wants to write it in the big letters, what's going on in salvation? And so, for a moment, what I want us to do is I want us to zoom in on this doctrine, this doctrine, doctrine of predestination, which up until this point in our series we have, we have kept you waiting for. What do we do with the doctrine of predestination tonight? Because as we, as we scan down chapter 2, verse 4, and verses 5, and verses 6, and verses 7, and verses 8, and verses 9, what do we see? It's all of God. So, what do we do with this doctrine? It's all over the pages of Scripture, so we have to do something with it. And I want to encourage you tonight to believe it. By faith, we believe what the Bible says is true. And so, to explain away this doctrine, to teach that God looks down the corridor of time, and He knows all those who shall respond, and therefore He chooses them, would be to attribute salvation to the person, and it would be to shrink and to belittle our God. And so, that understanding of predestination undercuts the very heart of the truth. Instead, salvation belongs to our God. Therefore, look at verse 4. He chooses outside of us and outside of our actions. Verse 5, the Lord does this in love. Now, tonight you might say to me, well, John, that's great predestination. It's just a Presbyterian doctrine that Presbyterians love, and you're a fourth or a fifth generation Presbyterian, and so is it any wonder that you love that doctrine? You grew up in a house where there were tulip uh, signs in the bathroom to remind me of the five points of Kelvin, and I don't joke, there were <laughs> the five points were there. It's nothing to do about that. Predestination is one of the greatest doctrines. It is essential to our whole understanding of salvation. Why? Why is it essential? It's essential because of the first three verses of chapter 2 that Paul has already explained. Because of our diagnosis, we're dead, and dead people can't make themselves live. We're diseased, and diseased people cannot cure themselves, and our destination is hell. And from that, we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. And so, John 6, 65, it'll come up on the screen for us. Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Unless it is granted by the Father. Our conclusion of all of this is what? As we talk about doctrine, sometimes we can shut down, we can switch the lights off in our brain. What's the conclusion? What's the takeaway from it? It's this, God gets all the glory in salvation. Nothing to do with me. Paul says it. It's a gift, verse 9, not as a, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is not down to your own intellect. It's not down to your own family upbringing. It's not down to how smart you are, how fast you can run, how strong you are. It's down to God's free gift, so that no one may boast. And do you know why this gives us confidence tonight? This gives us confidence because if you are a Christian, the Trinity 
The triune God is at work in salvation for you, Christian. The Father sending the Son, the Son coming for those whom the Father has given, and the Spirit calling and applying that to people. Now, the people that reject this, why do they reject it? They reject it because they begin the story of salvation, as it were, at the moment of conversion rather than at the moment of regeneration. What do I mean by that? Well, they, they begin their story from the moment that they respond in faith to the Lord, and they don't, as it were, trace back to what happened beforehand. This doctrine is given to us. It's given to us to give us confidence, because if it was up to us, what would we do with our salvation? Well, we would lose it, wouldn't we? How long could we hold on to salvation for? If it was half us and half the Lord, uh, well, how good would we be at saving ourselves? And I've used two words there. I've used the words regeneration and conversion. So let's just slow down for a moment because distinctions are really important for us, and it's really important as a church as we think about theological grammar. The words that we use are significant, and I realize this is, this is heavy for us. But regeneration, whenever we think about regeneration, what is it? If you're taking notes, it is the work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, helping us see spiritually for the first time. That's what regeneration is. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And what's conversion? Well, conversion is the response of the person who takes hold of Christ by faith. Now, again, that faith is a gift from God. Regeneration and conversion. Happy to talk to people afterwards if you have questions about this. But let's, let's circle back around. We look at verse 4. It's as if through the, the sweep of this, uh, uh, the trajectory of it, Paul almost interrupts his own logic, doesn't he? He realizes that he's been going for three verses into the, the depths of despair into our story, and he interrupts himself, and he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He has done what? He has made us alive together with Christ. This is the central theme of the entire letter to the church at, at Ephesus. We have been made alive together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, do you feel alive tonight? Do we feel alive? Because we've set, we've set aside the old zombie life. The Lord has saved us from that. He's made us alive. And so we as Christians, uh, to use the little phrase from the, the little course, we should go walking and leaping and praising God. This is our reality. We've been saved by the Son of God. We are alive in Him. We have even more, look at verse 6, we have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is an echo of chapter 1 and verses 18 through 20 that we thought about last week. It's the doctrine of union to Christ that we'll come on to at different points through this series. But the takeaway for us right now is this. Because of this passage, and it's, 
Uh, we've only started to take the first layer off it, by the way. We've only started to, to and don't worry, I'm going to stop. Don't worry, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to keep going through all the layers. But we, we've only started to peel off the first layer of this. But the point being that we have confidence in God because He has saved us. We have a hope that cannot be taken away from us because He has saved us. And if you've doubted your value, all you need to do is to read this and see who you are. And so, if someone in the future asks you, would you share your testimony for us? And you might be tempted to say, well, I don't really have a testimony, and it's really not that exciting, and and I really wouldn't know what to say. See if somebody asks you to take your testimony. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and say, to God be the glory, and sit down. (laughs) Because this is our story, Christians. This is the good news about who we all are. This is each of our stories, those who have believed tonight. This is what we have in common. All of us, we have experienced the greatest transformation, and we are alive because of what? Because of God's grace. And so we worship Him. Here's our final point. We want to walk then with Christ. So often in the Christian life, our experience stops there, doesn't it? We were once dead, and now we're alive. Once we walked in darkness, now we're in light. And it kind of just stops. But I want to ask, so what? What, The the so what question, what, what now, what next? Well, Paul has it for us. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Last week, uh, I'm sure most of us, we watched uh, the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, and imagine this, King Charles, he was crowned at age 74, but his mother was crowned whenever he was just four years of age. Now, uh, Charles could have sat back at his, at his mother's coronation, and he could have thought to himself, well, happy days. Any day now, this will all be mine. And he could have put his feet up. He could have put on his royal slippers. No doubt they would have been made from some fancy cloth from somewhere across uh, the world. And he could have thought, I'm going to get all my lands, and I'm going to get all my palaces, and I'm going to get all of the, the jewels and the crowns and all of the glory. It's all going to come to me. I'll just sit back and I'll wait. Well, he didn't think he was going to have to wait 70 years for it, but he could have done that. He could have put his feet up and chilled out and relaxed and said, this is all coming to me. I don't need to do anything. But he didn't do that. Instead, Charles charted his own path, as it were, and he set up his own organizations and his own charities and set his own priorities. But here's the thing. For us as Christians, as an heir, as we thought about over the last few weeks, to this great inheritance that's coming our way, to know that we are adopted, the temptation can be that we put up our feet and we put on our holy slippers and we think any day now Jesus will come and Jesus will take us back. And as for serving in the church, I don't need to do that. I'm going to pull the trigger on the recliner. I'm just going to chill out and watch everybody else here around me serve. That's not the Christian life. Look, look at the, the so what of the logic. For we are His workmanship. The Lord has crafted us and He has created us. To do what? To do the good works created in Christ Jesus, prepared from all eternity. And so there's no such thing as an inactive Christian. No such thing. 
or at least there shouldn't be. If we have everything stripped away from us, and we have no ability to even move, we can still pray. And the wonderful thing, I, I, get, I get really excited about this verse as I've thought about it this week, because the Lord has crafted us. See, see that in verse 10 in the beginning? For we are His workmanship. He has literally crafted us. And that means that He has given us our gifts and our talents. The things that we love to do, He has given them to us. The things that we are good at. And what we're meant to see is, how could we be using those? If you love walking in the Mourn Mountains, how can you use that for God's glory? How can you gather a group of, of younger people or, or other folks around you to, to bring them up there with you, to, to witness to them, to encourage them? If you love baking, how can you bake for God's glory? Whatever it is that you love, how can you use that to serve? Because it's no accident. That's how you've been crafted. You're His workmanship so that you will use the gifts, the things that you're good at, the things that you like, for His glory, as a way to bless people, as a way to care for people. You have good works to do that the Lord has prepared, so what are they? Have we asked that question? How can I serve the Lord? How can I honor Him in my workplace? How can I honor Him in my church? How can I share the gospel? What can I do, Lord? What is it that you have set out for me to do from all eternity? What are the good works that you have in store for me to walk in? Show me, Lord. Help me. And it's exciting for us because what we see in this is the sovereign hand of God. There are good works prepared for us to walk in, and so we must go and walk in those. That means that all of us here have a purpose, and it also means that no matter what is around the corner for us, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's hard or whether it's easy, there's still good work for us today, isn't there? As we face a diagnosis and we go on to a ward, where's the good work, Lord, for me to do? As, as we face some of the hardest circumstances in our lives, there's good work prepared for us to walk in. And the Lord, how, how do we see this? The Lord sends us out into the vineyard, doesn't He? He saves us and He sends us out. Uh, and sometimes in the vineyard, it's, it's really easy, isn't it? It's like working in the, the cool dew of the morning. It's beautiful. The sun's up. It's cool. It's nice. It's easy. But sometimes we find ourselves in the midday sun, don't we? in the midst of the vineyard, and there's thorns, and there's thistles all around the trees, and there's wasps, and there's snakes, not in this country, but in other countries, and there's snakes, and there's things that want to kill us, and bite us, and, and harm us, and it's hard, and it's tough, and it's difficult. But there's work for us prepared to walk in. And then, one day, the Lord will say, come on, rest. Come on home. Your work is done. But between now and then, there's grace for us, so we should walk in it. And with this, we close. Have we confidence tonight? Have we confidence to face all the trials that will come our way? Have we confidence to hold on to our faith, to own our Savior in the workplace, in the university, in the school? Well, our cry should be absolutely 
because what, of what the Lord has done, because the Lord being rich in mercy, do you, do you see that? He's got storehouses and storehouses and storehouses of mercy. He's rich in mercy, and so He deploys it to us. He gives it out to us freely, giving us His mercy because of His great love. He pours it out, a good God, drawing His people to Himself, saving us by grace. And so, when the pressure comes, we remind ourselves of this story. It's to this passage that we go often. It's this passage that brings us down whenever we get puffed up. It's this passage that lifts us up when we are downcast. It's this passage that lays out the path for us whenever we are lost. And it's this passage that shows us the greatest transfer that's ever happened from death to life, from God's wrath to His love, and from the power of the evil one to being sustained by God's grace. This is the Christian life, and what a life it is. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, this can be true for you too. I trust that you'll believe Him tonight for the very first time. Let's pray together.